welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I am your host, as always, Frank Zafiro. And in this episode, we are going to talk to Hannah Jameson about her newest book, The Last. Uh, Hannah is uh, from the UK, and you'll notice that right away with her accent. Uh, I did catch her uh, in the in the evening, uh, about a glass and a half of wine into her evening, so so she was plenty relaxed and uh, is a pretty funny person. The book sounds really cool, and uh, you, you'll hear more about it from her in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, I want to remind you that Wrong Place, Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Uh, Down and Out Books is an up-and-coming publisher that publishes dark crime fiction at the grittier end of the spectrum. If you want to learn more, you can go to downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books. Take the journey with us. And now let's meet Hannah Jameson. Well, hello, Hannah, and welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. So uh, when I got the note from your publicist expressing interest on in being on the show, my initial reaction was, well, this is a post, you know, post-apocalyptic story. It's not really crime fiction. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, uh, I like to spread things out a little bit and do different things. So I said, sure, that'd be great. And then I started looking into who you were and I was like, oh, yeah, she's definitely got these uh, crime fiction chops, these noir chops uh, for yeah. sure. Uh, and, and in fact, you were nominated for a dagger at one time, right? Uh, yes, award-losing debut. <laughs> oh, well, I've been there. I was a uh, three-time Derringer nominee and thrice the bride, uh, bridesmaid. So. Um, but that was for your first book, which was, which one was that? Uh, that was called Something You Are, um, which was uh, the first part of a, a series that was very much result, uh, revolved around London gangland. And that's called the Underground series, if I'm remembering. Yes. Yeah. And you've got like four in that series now? Uh, I've got three. Uh, three. The last one, my fourth. You, one of your books, Roadkill, mm-hmm. uh, is a couple of uh, Brits going cross country in the US. Uh, what um, made you want to set a book in the United States? Um, well, I've always kind of had an enduring fascination with the country's landscape and its history. And there was a lot of kind of urban folklore I wanted to include. So I wrote a kind of Kill Bill style road trip with Roadkill because I wanted to include things like uh, the Cecile Hotel makes a cameo appearance in Los Angeles, uh, which is the hotel in which the murder happened that inspired the last. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's based on a a true crime, a sort of true uh, case that was ruled a suicide, but the circumstances around her death are extremely dubious. And it became a kind of internet sensation when she went missing for two weeks, a Chinese Canadian student. And um, the police released uh, footage of her in an elevator the night she went missing. And it kind of went viral on YouTube because she was acting really erratically. And it's, it's kind of like a mini horror horror movie. It's really disturbing to watch. She, she's sort of acting like she's terrified and she's being followed. Um, she's pressing all of the buttons in the elevator, but the elevator won't leave. And they found her body two weeks later in the rooftop water tank. And they only found her there because uh, the water was cloudy and, was, and tasted a bit off and people were complaining about it. So yeah, that hotel featured in my third novel. Um, and it's also a big inspiration for my fourth. Well, I, I want to talk about that fourth book because it's the new one, The Last. 
hopefully not the last book, but that is the title, The Last. Uh, but first, you had an interesting video on one of your sites, or maybe it was on your author page on Amazon or something. You had the German video. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I spent time in Germany. I speak a little bit of German, so it was kind of fun to try to translate as you did the Love Actually parody there. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, now, Kalter Schmerz. Kalter means colder, right? Yeah. What's Schmerz? Uh, the, the direct translation is cold pain. Oh. Um, which, uh, the, the trouble with Something You Are, which, you know, my debut, is that it's a quote from American Psycho. It is evil oh. something you do. And apparently there was no direct translation for that kind of German. So they just kind of gave see. it a whole title and it turned into Kaltenschmerz. Oh, that's that, that's pretty cool. All right, have you spent any time in Germany or did you just uh, use Google Translate? Um, I've spent a bit of time in Germany. Um, I studied German when I was at school. So oh. I can sort of passable German if I were to visit uh -huh. now. I mean, uh -huh. I can't do conversational German anymore. Um, when we were connecting here for the interview, we ultimately connected through Google Hangouts, which required me, me to get your Gmail address. And it, you had a pretty interesting uh, Gmail address. It was, uh, remind me again, Cotton Patches Moses or something like that? Cotton Patch Moses, yeah. Cotton Patch Moses. And I laughed when you told me and said, there's got to be a story there. And I am, I've been promised that there is. So what is that story? <laughs> It's a, uh, a Cotton Patch Moses was the uh, nickname of a Southern uh, black preacher called Owen Whitfield. He was born in Mississippi and um, he basically was a, a really high profile. He became a really high profile organizer for the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. And he had this amazing oratory style. Um, he masterminded one of uh, the most famous peaceful protests in sort of American labor history, which was the um, sharecroppers uh, roadside demonstration of 1939 in Missouri. All these evicted like tenant farmers, black and white, piled their belongings up along the, um, the sides of Highway 60, Highway 61. And it attracted national press coverage and like put a target on Owen's back. And there were all these um, conspiracy theories that like he'd had help planning it from Moscow. And and um, <laughs> and afterwards, uh, President Roosevelt actually invited him and his wife to the White House uh, to meet and talk with them. Wow. Uh, there, there are two things that amaze me about that. One is that he was a full quarter century ahead of Martin Luther King and in, in, uh, in civil rights movements there. Oh, yeah. And two is I, my undergraduate degree is in history and I didn't know that. And here's someone from England giving me a history lesson <laughs> on my own country. So that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I've always like, I, I've been studying Southern history um, for a while now. Uh, so yeah, I can, I can send you so much stuff on Southern labor history. It's unreal. <laughs> it seems like there's a pretty large fascination in Britain with America with the U.S. and vice versa. There's a lot of Anglophiles here in the States as well. It's a, uh, an interesting phenomenon. Well, I think um, like American politics, it's it's definitely mirroring ours at the moment in that both of our countries kind of uh, drove themselves off a cliff within six months of each other. They um, <laughs> Brexit and the U.S. with Trump. So I think in a way, um, it's a way for us to sort of vicariously be entertained by someone else's politics, but without, uh, you know, the paralyzing terror of it actually, you know, directly affecting us. Uh, so yeah, most, most British people I know are obsessed with following sort of the Trump uh, media circus. I think that's why. 
Well, that makes sense to me. Let's talk about the book we're here to talk about, your new book called The Last, which again, I re- originally, the first hit of it to me was, oh, this is a another The Road clone or something like that. And uh, very quickly as you, as you read it, it's clearly something else. And I have to ask you, it's almost a little bit by description, like bipolar almost, because it sounds like it's this this uh, post-apocalyptic uh, sort of deal, and then and then everybody's holed up in the hotel, but then there's that murder that's eerily similar to the one you described before. So that sounds like a locked room, you know, mystery. So tell us, what is it really? I mean, it's it's all of those things. It's a it is a dystopian novel. Um, it's also partly a crime novel. Um, I think it's also a horror. I think there are elements of horror in it um, because, you know, I love that as a genre. But mostly it's an exploration of how people, uh, of how a very small group of people cope when all their institutions and their norms are stripped away. So what I was really interested in writing is writing a novel that sort of was sort of like J.G. Ballard, who was perhaps my greatest influence on like how that novel turned out. Um, Because he's very good at writing that kind of near future dystopia uh, flip the coin and it's a bit utopian as well but he's always been so good at exploring a sort of near future dystopia but without going you know veering off into sci-fi with it it's always been just our own society but if something breaks down um and it's about how these small group of characters in a hotel in switzerland deal with loss of their society and how they deal with that grief um and then also what they try and build in its place in terms of you know justice which is kind of the main theme of the novel i guess now the protagonist is an american Mm-hmm. And you, you're drawn in. You being the reader, are drawn in almost immediately to the book because it's presented in a diary journal format. At least the beginning that I've read it is very intimate. You're like really deeply inside the head of of John, the main character. What what made you choose to go with that approach as opposed to a third person or multi viewpoint sort of approach? Um, I did consider doing a sort of a multi viewpoint, but then I became I became sort of too obsessed with who 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 else might mm-hmm. that be? Could be any one of those characters. Mm-hmm. So I tried to keep things sort of relatively simple because the novel itself isn't that simple in terms of content. It's you know there's a lot of genres going on. There's a lot of you know information for people to take in. And John is a fairly kind of uh, nondescript record keeper of a character, and so I thought his perspective, sort of as a white a white sort of liberal academic would be a really good sort of lens through which to look at all of these other characters. And especially when it comes into sort of issues of blame. So when like the Europeans start to blame the Americans for nuclear war breaking out and then the Americans are blaming each other. And I I thought using an American kind of liberal would, would be very useful for that. So it, it, it sounds as if the, the book examines among other things, how, very flimsy the structures that keep us where we are truly are yeah yeah that's one of my that's always one of my favorite things to write about and i think that's why that's why i've always been such a ballard fan because you know one of the things one of his enduring preoccupations um in his writing is about the impermanence of all of our structures and because he grew up uh, sort of in a war zone he grew up in a country under occupation and, you know, it's getting used to that idea of like walking down the road and everything like, you know, your school, these houses, that they're not as permanent as we think we are. Especially like with regards to John being an American, I was really fascinated by the idea of civilization breaking down and being completely displaced. 
Because we all, you know, if you ever talk about having an apocalypse survival strategy, it always assumes you'll just be at home with all of your stuff to hand. It doesn't assume like <laughs> you're being some sort of conference bar with a ton of people who you don't know, some of whom you don't like. Um, and it's that kind of lottery of, you know, when nuclear war breaks out, we will probably, um, if nuclear war breaks out, um, we'd probably find out about it through a phone notification because that's how we find out about everything. Um, and we'd probably be out. We'd probably be at work. Um, we could be on holiday. Like, there's no guarantee of like who you'd be with. Mm-hmm. It, it also sounds like that isolation is is a little bit of a thread running through the book. I mean, the, initially, this group of uh, about 20 people are they're they're isolated from the outside world. They they're no longer getting anything on their cell phones. It's just them. Was, was that purposeful, or was that just to set up the uh, the locked room mystery part of it? Oh, no, that was intentional. That was part of the horror, I think. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create an atmosphere that was simultaneously extremely claustrophobic and completely isolated. So it has that discomfort coming from both sides. Mm-hmm. I think um, like a really a really good example of this actually is um, AMC's The Terror. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about the, um, the voyage of the, the sort of ill-fated voyage to find the Northern Passage. And the landscape in that series really played into the horror in that there's just ice there's nothing but ice in every direction, um, but they're self-contained on this tiny cramped ship where you know people are slowly going insane. And I really wanted to recreate something like that because mm-hmm. the atmosphere is so powerful in a horror sense uh, that the setting itself kind of becomes this sort of awful character. You mentioned that we we would probably, much like the characters in your story, find out about nuclear war via you know, a text message or a, a news notification from someplace that wasn't being directly affected, obviously, at that moment. And, and then that isolation ensues. It would seem to me that the more reliant we become upon these these different pieces of technology being our way out into the world to socialize, the more of an impact exactly what you described would have on us. Yeah, something else that I find sort of endlessly fascinating is that we all kind of we get the vast majority of our news, I think, from social media now, um, whether it's from Facebook or Twitter. And like everyone's main stress is is finding Wi-Fi at all times. Um, <laughs> there is, there's nothing more stressful than if, you know, than if your Wi-Fi goes, if your internet goes down. Like, you know, I've, I've lived in, you know, with roommates for a while. And if the Wi-Fi goes down, everyone's like, oh, my God, well, what do we do? Do we have to do other things now? <laughs> and people like, you know, we've lost the ability to kind of function without that as just a kind of background noise. So I thought like it would put all of any sort of modern character under intense stress if they couldn't access Wi-Fi and they couldn't access news. Yeah, um, I think I think that isolation is a great, a great move on your part. Uh, really it ratchets up the stress that they're feeling because not no, you know, stress a lot of times comes from no control or no information and you're giving them both there basically (laughs) yeah Uh, it is fascinating though because the flip side of that technology is i'm sitting here at 10 15 in the a.m in central oregon in the united states and a continent and an ocean away you're sitting somewhere on the english isles uh, uh, drinking wine at dinner time, you know, 6 p.m., <laughs> yeah. 6.15. And that that's pretty amazing, too. So, I mean, uh, uh, it's understandable why we've become so enamored with uh, this technology. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I think we really, I think we really depend on it. And especially as, 
like most of us are working what like several jobs um and everyone i know is you know just gasping for financial breathing space and we don't really have the time to socialize like we used to like the majority of people i know socialize online mm-hmm. uh, and their online friends are as real as mm-hmm. their, their offline friends um and that's certainly the case for me like working working alone it's not like i have colleagues or anything um so when i talk during the days it's to twitter um which i don't know how healthy that is but... <laughs> <laughs> uh so in in writing the last did you reach a point uh, where you were surprised by something that happened did, did, did it take a turn or do you meticulously plot to the point where there are no surprises i certainly don't meticulously plot i usually have ideas of where it's going to start, where it's going to end. And I have certain checkpoints I want to hit, but the chapters kind of reveal themselves to me one by one, according to, you know, what the characters are doing. Um, What really surprised me about the novel, actually, was um, that it ended on a kind of, I I think ultimately it's an optimistic assessment. I don't think it's bleak. I think it's, there's a lot that's horrifying about it, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's like the road and I didn't want to write something like the road and i think ultimately the novel is much more optimistic about humans capability to cooperate and to work through sort of cataclysmic events and i think it's actually much more optimistic than me to be honest well that was going to be my uh, next question was is with how with the, with the content of the book is uh, how how depressed you were writing it. <laughs> did it did it bring you down did it bum you out or was it exciting um it didn't depress me um i become depressed if i don't write um writing is sort of you know a form of therapy in itself and it's the reason i wrote something like the last i mean it's there's no coincidence that i started it um you know january 2017 you know straight after you know trump was elected and his inauguration etc and um part of like what had infiltrated the sort of communications landscape was just suddenly a ton of nuclear war jokes I just found myself kind of, you know, my, my generation, I'm, I'm like, what, 29 now. And, um, and I thought, wow, my generation is, is making nuclear, really dark jokes about everyone being vaporized in nuclear war. Um, and that wasn't the case a few months ago. And, um, you know, compared to people who are alive in the, in the eighties and alive in the Mm sixties, my generation, yeah, we're like, we're going through a cycle like that again, Uh, when, you know, after 2016, I think a lot of people were going through a grieving process um, because they had to let go of their, like this idea that society just kind of goes forwards. And, you know, there's this idea of like linear history and that everything eventually just kind of gets better. Um, And I think it's been a while since anyone has really acknowledged any sort of backlash and the fact that progress isn't, one, it's not linear and two, it's not natural. It it happens because people do things. and something, you know, the fact that we've regressed so far in a few years or that we appear to, like, be regressing, I think that's that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to come to terms with. And so, you know, naturally it was something I wanted to write about because I like to write about uncomfortable subjects that kind of scare me. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's why that book happened at that particular time. So, so the book is the last. Uh, and if I am a decent listener here it's a post-apocalyptic crime novel with horror elements political Mm -hmm. elements and it's a dystopian cum utopian 
novel that ends on a an, an optimistic note. Fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Hannah, and I look forward to actually finishing the book. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, there you are, folks. A good picture of Hannah Jameson. Had a really wonderful time talking to her. She's a delightful person. Uh, and I am excited to read further in the last. I only got to read the first part before we spoke. Uh, highly recommend you give it a try as the mishmash of uh, different genre elements is really interesting to me. Uh, I think you'll like it. Our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime will be a feature episode, actually last feature episode of the season, uh, with James R. Ziskin, who is the author of the Ellie Stone novels, uh, an all-around cool guy. So don't miss that. That'll drop in a week. I'd also like to take a quick moment to announce that uh, Down in the Books, my publisher, uh, did announce the launch of a new series that I'm writing called the Spokompton series. Uh, you can read more about that on my website, franksafiro.com, or uh, my blog, uh, All the Madness in My Soul, at franksafiro.blogspot.com, uh, where I lay out the uh, meaning of the term Spokompton and the books that are in that series. So please give that a, a look. Uh, definitely give Hannah Jameson's book, The Last, a good long look. In fact, read it to the end. Uh, and tune in uh, next episode when we talk to James R. Ziskin. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>